Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, all of you. Thank you, Pastor. It's great to be back here. It's been some years since I was here. My wife was with me the last time. And uh, if I'd have known I was going to get that extravagant introduction, I would have brought her again. I needed her to hear that. <laughs> it's great to be with you. I, um, I loved the music this morning. Was that great or what? Man. <laughs> Evidently, Pastor Dan believes what I discovered years ago. If you follow good enough music onto the platform, nobody knows whether you can preach or not. I, I just, I kept looking it over as I got the orchestra down in the pits and drummer's so crazy you have to lock him up in a glass booth. And <laughs> choir, man, this is great. I love this. And it's a great atmosphere. Great to be here with you. Um, I want to make one brief infomercial relative to the books that are there. Uh, I'm not sure what all titles are out there. Uh, probably some of the more recent ones. I just want to mention this one. This is David the Great. This is the life and leadership of King David. This book has been a huge, huge hit for us, and I'm delighted for that because we hit a, a market with this book that all Christian publishers will tell you is, is very, very difficult to hit, and that is male readers. Uh, that doesn't surprise women here. They just are surprised to know that any men can read. But they, they, uh, Christian books, walk through a Christian bookstore if you can find one, and uh, you'll see that um, most of the titles are written by women for women. And so when you can hit the male market, and we hit big with this one, women love the book, they read it, but uh, Father's Day is coming. I hope you'll buy multiple copies for the men in your life. This, is, this, book, is, um, this book is real. We deal with the real King David here, not the sanitized Sunday school version. This is not little David play on your harp. This is, this is the real guy. He was a complex, complicated, uh, and I believe deeply conflicted genius, uh, a multifaceted genius. A, and men love to read about it. Why not? He was, a, he was a man's man. He was a tough guy. This is a warrior's warrior here. This is a guy you want to take deer hunting with you. You might not want him to take your wife deer hunting. <laughs> but we deal with that. We deal with that. This is, this is David warts and all. And, uh, and a lot of times we read around stuff in Scripture, and I don't want to do that with David. But we're delighted. One lady bought uh, 10 cases. That's three, 360. I said, ma'am, I'll sell you 1,000, but Why? She said her son was a master sergeant in the army, and she bought uh, 360 books for him to give out to troops in his area. I thought that was great. One man bought for all the police, all the city police in his town, and gave them out to the cops. I thought, man, if we can get the cops reading Christian books, I'm all over this. Let me just say one thing to you. It doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny from any book I've ever written, 20 books, the, my newest will be out in October, and I've never taken one dime from it, anything, all the royalties are paid directly to global servants, I don't take anything personal, I never have. Love offerings, I appreciate what you said about an offering at the end of this, but it all, 100%, there's no smoke and mirrors here. 
Uh, I'm on a salary as the executive director of the National Institute of Christian Leadership. All the rest, everything goes 100% to our foreign missions program, particularly our girls' homes in Thailand and West Africa. So I hope you'll go out there to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> Refinance your house. <laughs> Steal the children's lunch money, come on. <laughs> and all that you give will go 100% to our girls' homes. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the Old Testament, to the book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter. The book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter. I'm gonna begin reading in verse six. If you're following me in a more contemporary translation, I'm going to be using the King James this morning. I'm not hung up on the King James Bible. Um, you don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. One will be given you when you get there, but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm always afraid somebody in the back, amen, brother, amen. I'm just teasing you. The kids at the universities, I was the president of two different universities, and they used to ask me all the time, why do you always read from the King James Bible? I said, well, the first reason is loyalty. I went to high school with King James, and um, it was Jimmy. Jimmy in those days, wasn't a king in high school. We called him Jimmy. And uh, the second is the flowery Shakespearean sound of the King James Bible that offends every, all the these and thous that offend everybody else, they appeal to my artistic, creative nature. I like the sound of the King James Bible. I just can't get used to Jesus walking down to the Sea of Galilee and saying to the disciples, it's happening, dudes. It's just me. But on this particular text, it is important that, uh, and the reason I'm uh, going through all that nonsense is that some of the modern translations suddenly translate one word, and I'm sure it'll be on the screen for you, but they translate one word inexplicably as God bless it. And the word in Hebrew is can, it should be grace, it's always translated grace, but suddenly in this passage, some of the modern translations translate it God bless it. And I guess if God blesses something, that is grace, but uh, it should be translated grace in my view, and so we'll read it that way, if you don't have a King James Bible, you follow me in whatever cheap communist imitation you've got. <laughs> all right, all right. Sober up. You're having way too much fun. This is church. Zechariah 4, beginning with verse 6. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Pause a moment. Zerubbabel is an Old Testament. We don't talk about typology much anymore in the church. But Zerubbabel is an Old Testament type for Jesus, the Prince of Restoration. This, then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Again, mountain. In prophetic writing, mountain may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. What it can mean is a force, a power, a kingdom, uh, an army, something like that. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. So here's the revised Rutland translation of that. Who do you think you are? kingdoms and powers and dynasties. Who do you think you are, geopolitical agents of the present age? Who do you think you are? When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. 
Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Now, if you'll put your hands on your Bible, let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, tenemos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana, porque te necesitamos mucho. Te glorificamos. Gracias por tu amor precioso. Y por favor, lléname con tu Espíritu Santo y úsame a su gloria, si es posible. Y por favor, glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you for your presence and for your power. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication and rush in over the threshold of our souls that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen, amen and amen. I, uh, I was raised in a very unusual home. Uh, we were um, nomadic. My dad moved a lot. I went to five schools in the first grade, uh, I, all in the same year. Let me hasten to add that. <laughs> Saw a guy in the back, so me too. <laughs> we averaged about three schools a year growing up until we reached a relatively sedentary period of our lives. I only went to three junior highs and two high schools. But in the midst of all that, the, the interesting characterization of it all was my, was my mother, actually. Uh, my parents are not educated at all. My mother is a ninth grade dropout. Uh, my dad lived to be 94. He was a combat veteran of two wars. He was a paratrooper in the Second World War, 82nd Airborne, and then switched to armored cavalry between the wars, and he was a tank commander in Korea. He was an unusual guy and a tough guy. Right up till he died at 94, my dad thought he could run you down and kick your butt. <laughs> my mother is 96, and she can. Um. <laughs> but my mother, despite her in total lack of formal education, probably one of the highest native IQs I've ever known in my life. My mother believed if one could read, one could learn anything. And so whenever we moved to a new town, my mother would literally take a laundry hamper to the local library and just fill it with books. And she came home and assigned them to us. You read this, 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 and we'll discuss it Tuesday night at dinner. And you, you, couldn't, you couldn't fake her out because she would read them. And uh, my mother believed in, I don't ever remember learning to read. I could, I could read fully when I went to the first grade. And we had to have that because moving so often like that, you were always behind in every subject. You just had to learn at home. It, we, were, we were homeschooled and didn't even know it. But, um, but my mother believed in, in words. Uh, and and it, she willed that onto me. Words are, are important. Words mean things. Uh, when a society suffers the loss or, or corruption or diminution of its vocabulary, it loses to one extent or another its ability to think because we, we think in words. And, and so a society, a whole culture may, um, 
may feel things, uh, may, may have deep emotional impulses, but lacking the vocabulary, they don't have the boxcars to load those thoughts on. And so it can cause all this emotional turmoil and the inability to, to think and therefore the inability to express it. I can give you a very basic example. A little boy in the fifth grade who thinks the brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest number he's ever seen, and he would like to tell her that and like to tell her that he wants her to be his girlfriend, and he can't think of the words, so he punches her in the mouth. <laughs> that can actually happen to, the whole, to a whole society. Words, words are significant. One of the problems with words is that they shift in meaning uh, generationally. And now, due largely to technology, they are shifting faster and faster. Um, I, I have a word of prophecy for the young people that are here today. There are words that you use right now that should Jesus tarry and you live to be my age, you may still use the word, but they won't mean the same thing. The, the, and it's a very disorienting. I wonder, for example, is there anybody here, I may be the oldest person in the room, is there anybody here that remembers when gay meant happy? Anybody remember that? I, I want gay back. Um, who stole gay? Uh, Don we now our gay apparel, the Christmas song? That didn't mean Christmas and drag. It, it, <laughs> gay used to be about disposition, not about orientation. And, and words change. I preached recently in California to a high school audience in, in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed. And, <laughs> and uh, I've known when I've ever preached to an audience that was so enthused. They were just taken with it, thousands of high school kids. Afterward, I was speaking to some boys just standing down here at the front. And the first boy said to me, Dr. Mark, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I remember early on in life setting a sort of a life goal of becoming a really sick dude. The fourth boy was not content with these low altitude compliments. He said, you are, you are not just bad, you're not just sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no idea. I teach the National Institute of Christian Leadership, which I mentioned earlier, and some years ago, a young man came through who now pastors a hip-hop church, whatever that is. And so I figured if anybody knew what the OG of Crunk was, it would be Tommy. So I called him. I said, Tommy, this is Dr. Mark. Somebody just told me I was the OG of Crunk. What does it mean? Oh, he said, OG means original gangster. So I said, he told me I'm the original gangster of crunk. He said, yes. I said, no, see, what I'm trying to get is a definition. What does it mean? Oh, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I thought you just wanted to know what OG meant. He said, it means you be the Mac Daddy. I said, yeah, Tommy, see what I'm after here 
is, is, could I come to some sort of an understanding? He said, Dr. Mark, I'm trying to explain it to you. He said, it means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. Now, when that happens to any word, there is a certain level of tragedy attached. But when it happens to our functional biblical vocabulary, when it happens to the way, the words that we use to think about God and therefore to talk to each other about God, our misapprehension of who he is may actually be warped around our vocabulary. Many years ago, I was preaching in the Minneapolis Soul Fest. It was an inner city outreach in downtown urban Minneapolis. We put up huge platform, great banks of speakers and blast the music out about nine decibels above the level where all the insects in the air died. And then we'd get a crowd and I would preach and the platform was tall. It was up like this from the ground. So people who came forward at the invitation, the altar workers would just kneel on the apron of the platform and minister to them. One girl came and knelt right in front of the pulpit so nobody saw her. So I just came and knelt down beside her. She put her forehead over on the platform and her hair fell down. I couldn't see her face. I said, Miss, would, would you like to receive the Lord as your Savior? And she said, Mr., I need it. I need help. I said, all right, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to pray right after me, right out loud. Are you ready? She said, yes. I said, Heavenly Father. And she didn't say anything. I said, now, Miss, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to say the words, and then you say them after me. Say it with me. Dear Father, she didn't say anything. I said, Miss, what's the problem? And the, the first time she looked up, I saw her face. This eye was swollen completely shut. She had a horrible bruise down across his cheek and her upper lip was split right there till I could see her teeth. Tears streaming down her little battered face. She said, you know, mister, I know I want the Lord, but she said, I've got all the father I can handle. And I realized that her understanding of God was confused by her understanding of fatherhood. The issue for her was not her appetite for God. It was the issue was her repulsion at the, at the word father. Now, when that happens to any word in scripture, it's awkward, difficult, and tragic. But here is a word in the book of Zechariah that has come to mean almost everything, and therefore it's come to mean nothing. And that is grace. Grace has now become like agape mayonnaise. You slop enough of it on anything, it can make rancid ham taste good. Isn't it amazing, remarkable, that the most, one of the most graphic images of grace in the entire Bible is here in this little minor prophet, Zechariah. In fact, in the Old Testament at all. Is it just me or do others of you tend to think of grace as an exclusively New Testament reality? that the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about grace. And yet here we have this graphic image of grace. The image is this. It is of us saved by grace. We know we are saved by grace. This, if there's any verse of scripture that is sacrosanct in the evangelical world, it is this, that we're not saved by works lest any man should boast, but we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. Even the faith to receive salvation by grace is a gift of God. The problem is we tend to see saving grace as an event. 
a one-time historical reality. I'm saved by grace. My name is written in the Lamb's book. My sins are under the blood. Now I'm saved. Now I turn to enter into a face-to-face -face intimate relationship with the Christ who has saved me, and I find experientially that he has retreated to the other side of some impregnable mountain, some mountain that looms between us. And, and that mountain prevents me from having the face-to-face -face intimate relationship. I know I'm saved, but that mountain looms between us. What is that mountain? It can be something different in every life. Anger, hurt, resentment, fear, unforgiveness, racial prejudice, chronic addiction, alcoholism, drugs, sin of some kind. And it, and it enters into our lives, and we want that mountain gone, and we feel experientially that Jesus has removed himself to the other side of the mountain. And until that mountain is gone, I cannot move in where he says, when it's gone, he will lay the foundation of a temple, of a tabernacle, where, as Moses said, where he will meet with us. And I want that meeting. I want that face-to-face -face intimacy with him. So I put shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. This year, I'll move that mountain if it kills me. The only problem is what? It will kill you. If it doesn't put you right straight in a religious loony bin, rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming Jesus loves me. Because the mountain won't move. It can't get around it. It is, a, it is an escarpment that reaches from pole to pole. It is unassailable in height, impregnable in defense. I can't tunnel under it. I can't get through it. And, and the frustration of that grows. That is the moment where many, and I suspect every one of you in here knows somebody, drops out of church. They leave church. They leave even the sense of the kingdom. They stay out because they, they blame something. They, they're angry. They blame something. I hate the preacher. I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too cold. It's something. The fact of the matter is, in a kind of twisted idealism, what they say is, I won't go to church with that mountain in my life. The problem, of course, is obvious to everyone that them, they stay home with the mountain in their lives. Others take a different approach. They drape the mountain in camouflage. They simply enter into a mutually agreed upon covenant of suspended disbelief, dragging their camo-draped mountains behind them like a ball and chain. They come across the parking lot of spirit-filled churches, meeting others dragging theirs. Do you see my mountain? Nay, brother, thou hast no mountain. <laughs> what about me? No mountain there. Let's go to church. And we worship the Lord at this level, and in the spiritual domain over our heads, there is a veritable sierra of unresolved mountains. Others, and thank God it's most of us, finally collapse at the foot of the mountain and cry out, Lord, I can't move this mountain. Are you over there? Because I want this mountain gone. I want to meet with you. I want to know you, but I can't move this mountain. And so I quit. What do you have to say to that? I quit. What we fear is that from the other side of the mountain, we'll get a tongue lashing. 
because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So we think what we'll hear is this, you big fat sissy. If you can't play with pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. Pull your socks up and hit that mountain again. I played high school football, as a matter of fact, right at the end of the Civil War. It hurts me when you laugh at me. That, that's so rude. That is so rude. I played in the old days. I wonder if there's any old guys here old enough to remember. I played before there was platoon football. We didn't have offensive and defensive players. You'd play it both ways. You remember that? In fact, there were only 19 boys in the high school. You just put your helmet on and played till you died. But on offense, I played quarterback. On defense, I played free safety. I dreaded our inner squad scrimmages more than any game we played because the tailback on our team was the coach's son, Bobby. And Bobby was the most vicious and lethal runner I've ever attempted to tackle in my life. If he got through into the deep secondary, he came at me all helmet and knees and demons. And I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bobby's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. But Bobby was on a search and destroy mission. He would chase me. So finally, I asked him about it. I said, what, what is up with you? You're not the biggest guy I've ever tackled. What, what's the deal with you? He said, you want to know? Come home with me after school. I was shocked. Nobody went home with Bobby. Not only was he a vicious and lethal runner, he was one of the most vicious and lethal human beings I've ever known. As far as I know, Bobby didn't have a friend in the world. I went home with Bobby that afternoon. We went into his garage and he pulled the metal door down and he said, there's your answer. And the metal door looked like somebody had been hitting it with a sledgehammer. He said, the day I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a helmet on my head and made me bend over at the waist and run into that garage door with all my might. And he said, I've hit it every single day, 365 days a year, birthday, Easter, Christmas, no exception. And any day I didn't hit it hard enough, he would hit my legs with a braided whistle strap until I hit it hard enough to please him. Is that your Jesus? If that's your Jesus, your Jesus is my devil driving us with the braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness. Pray better. Love people more. Overcome your sins. Tear up that mountain. And we're not exempt from it in the ministry. There's more than one preacher trying to preach the mountain out of his own life. Believing that Jesus is behind the pulpit with a braided whistle strap saying, build a bigger church, preach better, win more people. As long as we feel that Jesus is driving us to move the mountain in our own lives, all it does is build up resentment and misunderstanding between us and God on the other side. But when we finally do collapse, Lord, are you over there? I quit. From the other side of the mountain comes words we never thought we'd hear. Good. <laughs> That's what I've been waiting on was for you to quit. Now stand back. And then it says Jesus shouts. A remarkable passage of scripture. Jesus shouting. What does he shout? Do better. Follow the rules. Get holier. Move that mountain. 
No, in fact, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he shout? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. The liberal humanist will tell you that grace means God doesn't care about the mountain. That he nudges the angels in the ribs and winks and says, well, boys will be boys. But that condemns us to the destructiveness of the mountain. The legalist, the holiness legalist will tell you that grace means God will finally make you strong enough to uproot the mountain. But that condemns us to failure and frustration because the Bible tells us it's not by might nor by power. Grace means God wants that mountain out of your life, but he wants to remove it himself. He's only waiting for you to surrender it to grace. The problem is, while we take possession, responsibility for that mountain, we, can I coin this phrase? We disgrace ourselves. We ungrace ourselves. And not having grace, we become disgraceful. One cannot give away what one doesn't have. They're just disgraceful Christians, angry, judgmental, critical, just angry, bitter people complaining about something all the time. They are disgraceful. Why? Because the reservoir of grace in their own lives has run out. You can't give away what you don't have. They're disgraceful churches, just totally disgraceful, disgraceful Christians, griping about the church, griping about the preacher. One, one, one Sunday, I pastored a huge mega church in Orlando years ago, thousands of members in a church of that size. I promise you there's about three to five percent of them that are demon possessed at any given moment. <laughs> One Sunday, I was in the lobby shaking hands, which is usually a tactical mistake. And this guy came up to me so angry he could hardly talk. He said, well, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He said, because of the lie that you told in the pulpit this morning. I said, what lie? He said, I heard you. I heard you. You told about a certain battle that happened in World War I, and you said that battle happened in 1917. He said, I happen to be an expert in American military history, and I know that battle didn't happen until early 1918. He said, a man that lie about a thing like that will lie about anything, and I won't sit in a church where the preacher is a liar. I said, well, bye. <laughs> No, I mean, adios. I cannot fix that for you. Do you see that that is disgraceful? What he thought, what I did was disgraceful. What he said is disgraceful. It disgraces the situation. On the other hand, let me tell you about an attorney in that same church, my dear friend. In fact, I exchanged a text message with him this morning and told him I was going to talk about him in church. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, we had night church in those days, we were Christians then, and <laughs> every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, all the years I was there, after every sermon, this lawyer would come up to me and say, oh, Dr. Mark, it's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week, year after year after year. I know that intellectually, but I like that lawyer lying to me. 
When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. I wanted some grace. I know what you're thinking. We can't do that with Pastor Dan. We can't do, we pump his ego. We just can't do that. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. After 53 years in the ministry, I have now decided that the entire race of Christians is divided into only two tribes, pumpers and poppers. I believe God is looking for a pumper church where he can pour out his power and grace. We, we don't just disgrace churches and pastors. We, we disgrace our own families. There are families that live under the cloud of disgrace. Somebody constantly picking at them, accusing them. Trying to, we spend our lives trying to straighten each other out. But let me tell you something. I have resigned. I, I don't try to straighten anybody else's life out. Here on, I'm trying to live in grace. Let me just say a word to the husbands here. Where are all the married men? Raise your hand. I know what you're thinking. Try to say something to help. All right, here you go. <laughs> Listen to me. When your wife walks in with that dress she just bought at the shopping mall, and she says, look what I bought. She's modeling that dress for you. She's modeling that dress for you. She didn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that set me back? <laughs> I'm going to confiscate your credit card. That disgraces her. She wants you to throw that newspaper aside and leap to your feet and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Baby, look at you. You wear that on Wednesday night and we're going to be late to prayer meeting. That's what she wants to hear. That's grace. Now, girls, let me talk to you for a minute. There's a way in which your husband is like God. Just saw three ladies in the back say, this is why I came. This is right here why I came. No, there's a way that your husband is like God. The Bible says that God has numbered the hairs on your husband's head. So has your husband. And he does not need you to remind him that the number is diminishing annually. There's a lot of stuff that he will laugh at, and it isn't funny. When I leave to go off traveling some godforsaken foreign country somewhere, Michigan or someplace, <laughs> as I leave my wife of 53-plus years, this July we'll be married 54 years. When we... Yes, yes go ahead and applaud for her. It's, it's been a 54 years of uns. Spoken, unbroken splendor for me. She's had two or three minutes of happiness too. And <laughs> when I start to leave, she puts her little hands on my face and she says, Oh, Mark, you are the handsomest, sexiest man I've ever seen. L look up here. <laughs> I live in the real world. But a lawyer and a wife who will both lie to you, that's a gift of grace. We disgrace our kids. 
We disgrace our kids. When I was the president at a certain university in the Midwest, to remain unnamed, ORU, um, <laughs> a man came into my office. He said, I want to talk to you about my son. He was angry. He said, well, I said, well, who is yours? We had thousands of students. I didn't know them all. He told me his son's name. I happen to know this kid. He was a real leader on our campus. He was in one of the worship groups. He was a chaplain in one of the dorms. I said, oh, I know him. What a wonderful boy. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, I'll tell you exactly why I'm here. I want that earring out of his ear. And he said, I want you to make him take that earring out. When I look at my son, I can't even see him. He's not even my son. I can't even see my son. All I can see is that earring. And I want you to make him take it out. I wanted to say, you have had him for 18 years. He's been here three semesters. It's my job now. I called the boy into my office the next day and I said, guess who was in my office? He said, I know, my dad. And he said, I know why he was here. He wants you to make me take this earring out. I said, man, son, your dad is a piece of work. <laughs> he said, oh, Dr. Mark, it's constant. It's constant. Earring, earring, earring. That's all I hear. I said, man, isn't that stupid? He said, it is stupid. I said, think about that. Let an earring stand between you and somebody you love. He said, it's so stupid. Oh, he said, I know what you're doing. I said, look, son, one of you is going to have to be an adult. And I, and I met your dad. <laughs> he said, you know, I just never thought of it that way. You're right. I've never been so proud of a kid in my life. He took that earring out of his ear and laid it on the coffee table in my office. And he said, my father, I'll never see that earring again. That's grace. That's grace. We disgrace each other. We disgrace the church. Worst of all, we disgrace ourselves. We live in constant self-evaluation, which is contrary to the consummate word of God. We stare into the mirror, of the full-length mirror of self-evaluation, and we despise what we see. Superficially, we look at what happened to you. Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fact? <laughs> you, you realize, I'm not trying to run your people off, Pastor. <laughs> you realize this is, not, this is not real Christianity. You realize that, right? I mean, I've never committed a really venal sin in Sunday morning church. This is not real Christianity. This is church. Real Christianity is a Tuesday morning in the middle of January when there's a freezing wind blowing right out of North Texas and sleep flowing sideways and you race out to your car late to work and slam your hand in the door of your car. That's real. That's real. How do you respond to that? You can say, oh, I'm getting a lawyer. Ford Motor Company's going down. Or you can blame yourself, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. <laughs> or more often, you can blame God. Well, you've done it to me again. This is what I've come to expect. 
Or you can lift that mangled paw aloft and grant yourself grace be unto thee. We don't just do it superficially. We do it spiritually. You ever hear anybody say this? If you've ever said it, I know you'll never say it again. And the next time you hear anybody say it, you'll know what to answer. You ever hear anyone say this? I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You know what the theological answer to that is? Here it is. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You are a more righteous judge than the God of the universe? God says there is therefore now no condemnation, and you say, oh, yes, there is. You disgrace yourself. We disgrace ourselves. We disgrace each other. And we wind up living cold, critical, angry, disgraceful lives. You're a jolly crew. It's nice to be at a church where people laugh. You, you can't believe the number of churches I go to where you just sense laughter has never happened here. <laughs> so I'm going to reward you this morning. I'm going to tell you the funniest church story that I've ever heard in my whole life. You, you do realize that the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, right? You're not living in that level of denial, are you? And the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled. You do know that, right? I believe it ought to be a question for ordination in the full gospel ministry. Do you see what's funny about us? If they don't see it, don't ordain them. So a friend of mine who is a pastor in another Pentecostal denomination, not yours, he told me this story. I cannot vouch for its veracity. He is, after all, a preacher. But he swears it's true. He said he invited an evangelist to preach at his church. And he said he had one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses in the church. Do you have any of those? No? Oh, we'll send you a few. Um, Into every life a little rain must fall. They've all got the red phone to heaven. You know, nobody can hear from God but them. So she called the pastor, and she said the Lord had revealed to her the evangelist wasn't supposed to come. The pastor said exactly what he should have said. The Lord hasn't revealed it to me. Until he does, he's coming. You don't have to be here. I'm not asking you to affirm it, but he's coming until God speaks to me. She wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. The first night... That evangelist opened his Bible, had been preaching about five minutes, and that old lady stepped out in the center aisle, raised her hand up and pointed in the evangelist's face and said, whoa, thus saith the Lord, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger, but thou art not a humdinger, saith the Lord, thou art a dinger. I said... My God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Rutland, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in life had prepared me for that moment. And he said, I just froze. He said, it was the evangelist that saved the day. He looked at her for a moment, and then he put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. (laughs) And a little laughter over here and some laughter over here. Laughter in a church will feed itself. Then the musicians started laughing. That's usually where the trouble is right there. And... It became a crescendo. Finally, that old lady slammed her Bible shut and went up. When she stood under the exit sign, she raised her hand up and said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. The pastor told me, Dr. Mark, it was the hour of deliverance. 
The odd thing is this. She was actually right about one thing. This is the strange thing. People always, do you get people, Pastor Dan, do you get people that rush up to you and want a word from God? Do you have a word for me? Usually I, I get that. I'm in an airport somewhere. You know, Mike, I'm in an airport somewhere after I've been on Christian television. That bring, brings the loonies out. And <laughs> they rush up to me with this deer in the headlights look and say, Dr. Rutland, do you have a word for me? Do you have a word? I always want to say, yes, read your Bible. Everybody always wants a word from God. Here's a word from God. This is a word. Look right up here. All of you on this side. Look up here. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. All of you over here. You too, Pastor Dan. You need this. Look up here. Thou art dingers too. Thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Praise God. Think of all the time and energy and spiritual, emotional, psychological effort we've put into trying to make everybody else think we're humdingers. And nobody ever believed it anyway. Once you can accept the fact that we all live by grace and grace alone, God can replenish the reservoir of grace in your own life. And those people around you that are longing for a shower of grace upon their lives to flow out of the fountain of grace in your life, they perceive of you as having been changed. But it isn't you at all. It's the grace of God now so full in your life that it overflows onto them. Their wives and husbands and children and pastors and churches that are just longing for the shower of grace to flow, overflow out of a life near them and touch their lives. Well, let me close with this. I'm sort of like the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. He said, finally, and wrote three more chapters. But... <laughs> no, I, I, let me close with this. I, I've been uh, doing a little research lately. I don't know if I'll ever do anything with it, but it, I just got fascinated with famous last words. The last thing that anybody ever says is, is important. Um, John Wilkes Booth, who murdered President uh, Lincoln, uh, when he was wounded by the federal troops that captured him, that wounded him, and that dragged him up onto the porch of a farmhouse, and that's where he died. As he lay there, dying of his mortal wounds, his last words, he lifted his hand up in front of his face and said, useless, and he died. I don't, I don't want my last word to be useless. John Wesley's last words, he said, the best part is God is with us, and he passed into heaven. Now, what is God's last word? What if somebody came in here today, knew nothing about Christianity at all, we gave him a Bible and said, go home and read this. And he began to read and faith began to arise in him and he began to get hope and to think this thing sounds wonderful. And he came to the last sentence of the Bible. What if he came to the last sentence of the Bible and God said, I hate the bunch of you. 
No, is it just me? Would that be a little bit deflating? Or what if he said this, I'm going to take some of you to heaven and some of you to hell, but I'm not going to tell you how I decide. That'd be, that'd be frustrating, wouldn't it? What is the last thing God says? It's as though he says, look, I've been saying this to you from the Garden of Eden. I said it through the prophets. I said it through my son. I said it through the apostles. I've said it on every page of the epistles, and you still won't hear me, so I'm going to say it one last time. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's how the whole Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, all the time, all the way, no matter what. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm not going to give an altar call in these times. We're not doing that, but I, I want to pray with you, and I want to put my faith with yours. Now, if you'll close your eyes, that'll be great. But I want you to know I'm opening mine. My eyes are open so that I can see you. If you would say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? I have stuff in my life. And I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God in my life. I've got some stuff in my life that I've been trying to overcome. And I'm not getting any victory. And I want to turn it over to grace. I want God to take it. Take charge of the mountain, whatever it is. If that's you, then you just lift your hand and take it right back down. And I want to pray for you. Oh, so many, so many, so many. Sure, why not? Why not? We've all got gunk in the gears. Heavenly Father, with our hands lifted to you, we're asking that you would take charge of this. Let your grace flow in, across, through, wash out all this nasty stuff, everything that is repugnant to your gospel. Cleanse us, O oh Lord, for we cannot seem to cleanse ourselves. Come, God of grace. Now take your hands down, but if you'll keep your eyes closed. Here's the second question and the final question. If you would say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? I have become a disgraceful person. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why I became so critical and judgmental and angry and hurt. I don't want to be like this. I don't even know where it came from. Will you pray that God will replenish the grace of God in me? Spouses, children, parents, longing for me to be a person of grace. And I can't do it because the reservoirs run dry. Will you pray for me? If that's you, then you lift your hand up. Wow, so many. I'm so impressed with you. I'm so amazed. It is easier for a Christian to admit cocaine addiction than to admit that they are angry and judgmental. I'm so amazed at you. Lord, you see our hands. We're asking you, O oh Lord, replenish the reservoir of grace. That instead of judging others, we accept. Instead of being angry and critical, we are affirming and gracious. Make us generous, O oh Lord. Give us lives of grace. And we'll be very careful to tell everyone, this is the overflow of God in a life that needed it. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.